Welcome back to The Wine Show. You've got Simon Nash, Richo Damani, and we're joined in studio by uh, Daniel Fischel from Linnea and, amongst other things, Linnea um, Winery. Welcome to you, Daniel. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so we've got lots of different things we can talk about, so I think we just start talking. Um, but we we met at a, at a tasting and um, you've got a, a winery, Linnea, um, which is based in Malvern. Um, yeah, we're trying to make Malvern sexy again, although I think it might be the first time. <laughs> but we have a small urban winery. We're producing oh, six to ten tonnes of grapes through there. Uh, at the moment, most of our grapes are coming out of central Victoria in the Heathcote wine region. Yep. And we uh, also have half our wines coming out of Piedmonte in, in uh, northern Italy. Yeah. Well, before we get to the Italian stuff, which I've um, tasted some of, six to ten tons, pretty small kind of thing. So a bit of a garage project style thing? Well, it started in the garage, but we actually make it a fully functional uh, commercial winery. We do grape receival all the way through processing, uh, aging. We use a combination of large format neutral uh, containers, uh, botte, if you will, uh, concrete. We're aging in concrete and clay and so on. So it's a, it's open open top general fermentation. We use maceration and native fermentations. We do a lot of work really to try to improve the sustainability and the footprint, carbon footprint of our wines. Mm. I do like this idea of a urban winery. I know we've got um, Jam Street, of course, that's quite close to us here, Gary Mills. But the original concept going back to sort of Bordeaux in the 80s when it was just such a a rich man's plaything, and I think it was a guy called Jean-Luc Tunavan, I think his name was, it's just like, nah, garage east, I'm going to start doing it in my garage. I, I reckon that's a great thing because it bring, it's bringing wine back to the burbs. It really is, and it allows you to have complete control over what's going on. You're there if you feel at uh, 10 o'clock at night you're trying to fall asleep and then all of a sudden you remember there's a uh, punch down you want to do, you just jump out, you're in your PJs, you get it done, you go back to bed, it's great. So that mean we're going to tell Tim Shan to move into Voyager into the top. <laughs> that sounds like it. <laughs> Just in case he gets a stuck for a couple of minutes down the road, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so that's next level, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, that's that's fantastic. Um, I don't imagine we can visit. Um, for a tasting or anything yet? No. We could probably sneak you in the side door if you absolutely have to, yeah, but right. technically but we're not, not supposed to, yeah. yeah. We, um, <laughs> we, we're we modern in the sense that we want our presence to be uh, in the hands of the online community, so young people and, and people who are interested in exploring wines. We've got a beautiful selection of uh, modern clones, modern rootstocks, and um, agroecology is a big focus in our farming, so it's, it's all around carbon footprint, it's all around sustainability and... Uh, for people who want to get educated and, and take that next step to interesting wines, wines for good occasions, then yep. we've got we've got the perfect answer for it. Probably and at some stage, uh, I had Paul Taylor on the show a couple of months ago talking about there were actually you know lots of vineyards in and around Melbourne. There's still a couple, but I reckon out that that way there would have been a few back in the day. Yeah, there's one just across the Yarra in Hawthorne. Oh, yeah, yeah, the in Hawthorne. Yeah. That's the Cabernet, uh, Cabernet. Vino. Cabernet and Nebbiolo, I believe. It's yeah. Nebbiolo. Too. Yeah. Nebbiolo. Is it still there? No. It's it's still yeah. there. It looks white, sort of late in the season because it's got quite a bit of disease pressure yeah. from the <laughs> yeah. from the river. Yeah, but uh, it's still <laughs> there. Yeah, right. Um, so, and the, the packaging you, you mentioned it earlier. Um, the the bottles uh, they the, just they look look really awesome. cool. So I can yeah. see the youngies really, you know, gravitating to it. Yeah, yeah. we have a. Um, we, we feel that the label and the presentation of the wine is the introduction. It's like a handshake or a, even sort of your, your Tinder profile pic, if you will, <laughs> and you're, you're going to swipe left or swipe right depending on what you see. And so the first thing you want to do is grab attention, ask the question, this is interesting, This I'm curious to know more about this, what's inside? Yep. And so obviously you have the wine has to deliver as well, but the, 
the essence of the labels is that we want to tell a story uh, or invite conversation and they are somewhere between our science nerd background and surrealism and I think uh, you know it looks it's pretty interesting go have a look uh, on our Instagram feed yeah so uh, how do we find you on Instagram just for anyone who's listening in um, so it'll be uh, so the winery is spelled L-I-N-N-E-A almost it's oh. L-I-N-N-A-E-A oh. Linnea Vineyards there we go. And you'll find it, yeah, Linnea. It's if you're any anyone out there's interested in starting a new wine brand, please pick a brand <laughs> that's easy to pronounce. That's a mistake we made. But Linnea Vineyards, L I N N A E A. What we failed there with the initial name, we make up for with curiosity. So have a look. Well, Linnea without the A is obviously like a, a name, but with the A, is it some sort of scientific thing? Technically, yes. It's named uh, so we put it together with two things. One, it's the uh, middle name of our our oldest daughter, yeah. And also the uh, and here's where the science nerd hat comes on. It's uh, Carl Linnaeus was the father of modern taxonomy, and <laughs> okay, yeah, we, we, we're going in down the rabbit hole <laughs> at ten, <laughs> ten o three in the morning. Ten here. o'clock on a Sunday morning. <laughs> um, but basically, the idea he came up with a binomial system, so the genus plus species, and yeah, we yeah. did that with our wines. Linnaeus, the genus, and the species are the different wines like Rhizotomy or Oblio and so on. Yeah, it's interesting though coming those wines from up in North Italy there. To have those cool kind of labels on them, that's something that we haven't seen in Australia because they're very traditional with their labelling up there. There is 11 different pieces of paperwork that you need to get through to get a DOC or DOCG neck tag on your wines. And the last one, the last step you have to go through is that there's a discretionary group that decides if your label meets the standards that have been set historically in the region. Yeah. So you can imagine how hard that fight was for Barolo. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had a mate who used yeah. to live in Turin and he sent me a birthday present one year and he, and he just rang me up and he said, I hope you understand how difficult it was. So he went to the post office and they said, no, it has to be wrapped in this particular brown paper. The store's over the other side of town. So he goes to the other side of the town and gets the paper and then he goes back to the post office like, and it has to be wrapped in this particular kind of string. So he goes back to the paper shop like, now the string shop's over the other side. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I imagine it's like. Oh, oh, it felt like that at times. When we were trying to negotiate just a contract to be able to be allowed to make our wine in, in a winery there, we had, I don't know, seven or eight different meetings, each of which lasted about two hours at lunchtime, eating raw meat and the baking sun and <laughs> red wine. Our poor child was 18 months old at the time, and she's just sweating away. <laughs> we think you're done with your contract. You think everything's done. They're negotiating back and forth over the craziest little details. I'm like, we're all good. We're ready to go. Yeah. There's just one more thing, and we'll <laughs> yeah. meet tomorrow to go over it. <laughs> A tax on Australians, but how do you get those prices so low for like the broiler is only sixty bucks? I mean, that's that's an awesome value mine. Yeah, it's a it's a case of being a opportune to be in the right place at the right time. You couldn't do that today. Yeah. Back then there was uh, Barolo was was well regarded in the US, but it hadn't really uh, gotten very far. It was in the hands of a few and the large. Yeah. And so we looked at that opportunity, realized that's a great wine. It was presented to me because I was doing my consulting work over there and as part of the nursery industry, looking at clones um, for the American market. And um, they just said, do you want to give this a go? And we said, yes. And so by being the producer, by going over there and making it yourself and then bringing it in yourself, you sort of, it it doesn't pass from hand to hand. So we keep that price down. Cutting out the middlemen. That does make sense. Um, you, you touched on your consulting. Yeah. Um, that was something that, that I was um, fascinated by um, when we were having a chat at the, at the tasting. So tell us a little bit about 
what what you are involved in and, and how you are sort of working with vineyards and, and helping them. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'm wearing two hats today. Obviously, today, Linnea Vineyards, our urban winery in Malvern. Go check it out. Okay, enough of the plugs. It's really... <laughs> L-I-N-N-A-E-A. <laughs> That's Linnea Vineyards. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, um, yeah, so Ear Trumpet Consulting, Ear Trumpet is a... Um, is our consulting arm. It's something that my, my wife and I do. do our, my wife's our winemaker. She's also a, a brilliant fermentation scientist. And I work as an agricultural scientist. And so between the two of us, you see where the science nerd thing comes along. Mm. Conversations at dinner table are pretty tragic. But we, um, I, I was fortunate enough to be invited. Uh, first of all, when we were uh, working in living in Napa Valley, I was working with some of the fanciest wine brands over there as uh, doing vineyard developments and helping them with their irrigation strategies reducing water use, increasing their um, ecological farming. And I got invited, I got fortunate enough to be invited to places not just around California, but eventually around the world. And as a result of that, I've been to, uh, you know, up until COVID kind of shut us down, I was doing a lot of work in Russia and China and Italy and Israel and Mexico and Arizona mm. and other parts of the world. And we had plans to go to Turkey and Romania and, and Eastern Europe and so on. Wow. So. Um, so, so if you're a vineyard owner, what what is it that you're coming to tell us to do? Yeah, the for the last decade or so, or last fifteen years, my work was really focused on three core areas. One of which was climate change. So, coming into a large, it might be a large winery, it might be a premium winery, it might be a winery that has both, and just really doing an audit of how they're growing their grapes and whether they're stuck in that uh, in that old mentality of just fit it in, get it done, and try to just you know, ramble along at the same same thing, hoping just didn't make minor changes. So it's about vineyard redevelopment. It's about looking for and using clones that are better, varieties that are better suited to regions, yep. changing irrigation strategies, changing fertilization strategies, replanting vineyards, and then introducing ecological strategies. So it was finally talked about at the technical conference uh, just last week in Adelaide, the Australian Wine Industry Technical Conference, which is the triennial uh, meeting of the industry. Mm to discuss the state of the industry and where the future looks. And they're finally talking about things like regenerative farming, agroecology, sustainability footprints. It was literally the first two days. And so we've been doing this for a decade, which is to use native plants, native ecosystems and lessons learned elsewhere in biology. Um, I got yelled at a lot when I would go and talk to people about tropical forest biology and how people were growing things in the, in you know, in tropical countries because they have to use these multi-storied ecosystems to be able to feed one tree feeds another and another one supports another and they mm. they get into the nutrient cycling and the water cycling and these are all systems of efficiency and finally today people are just starting to re think about efficiency on the vineyard floor yep. with irrigation and with nutrients and with management of erosion and runoff and water yeah, and probably be, you know, companion planting and doing all that sort of stuff mm. too. Had a really good day out in the vineyard with Stewie Proud out at Thousand Candles, you know, and he's he doesn't want to be certified organic, but you know, he does farm organically. But right. he made the point that, you know, it takes a long time to get those nutrients back in the soil when you've got these high acid soils out there in Gruyere and also made the point of there's a hell of a lot of copper you know, being sprayed all of the time. And that's something that doesn't biodegrade, right? Yeah, the the use of copper is actually starting to be phased out in Europe. They're trying to put limits on right. the amount of copper going into the organic vineyards because they do paint their vineyards blue out there. Yeah, and that's a thing that I don't think consumers understand, Simon, is that 
often they will just look at something and if it says that it's organic or it's this or that, it means they're not doing anything else bad. But, I mean, it, it, it just because it's organic doesn't mean they don't put sulphur in it. Or I mean, in America that's true. But, you know, it's more of a holistic approach, I think, to farming mm. that we need to take. Yeah. And the and the point is right that organic farming is an essential step. But if you get certified, you do also have to realise that if you have a really bad year, like 2011, yeah. you can't sort of tell your consumer, hand them a bottle with a note rolled up inside saying, <laughs> by the way, uh, uh, Vinny got devastated this year. <laughs> here's, here's the bottle. We'll get wine next year, I promise. Yeah. You do have to have strategies in place that uh, go beyond just you know, being organic and that I think a lot of that evolves around really understanding the entire ecological community that in, exists inside a vineyard. One of the things that I started doing was to actually uh, encourage development of a what I at the time was calling an artificial ecosystem, meaning we actually build an entire ecosystem inside the vineyard, whereas the bulk of the industry still is out there strip spraying under vines and mowing the, yeah. the, the middles to the, you know, to the ground. So if you're out in a vineyard, if you're out in any wine region and you look out at the vineyards and you see brown earth under vines and a nice tight mowed lawn down the middle, then they're doing it wrong now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the things I always loved to talk to consumers about when I was working out in the Yarra with the rose gardens at the end of the rows, yeah. and people would often go, oh, it's about disease pressure. And, blah, and I'd be like, think about it. If you've got like mildew on your roses, the middle of your rose are going to be stuffed. So it's just it it's just about looking good. Why do we make our vineyards look good? We want to make and make good fruit, right? Exactly. Yeah. The so I've developed a, a crop model. Um, it's a fancy word. In fact, there's a lot of fancy words thrown about out there, in particularly in ag tech. One of the last hats I'm wearing today is as an ag tech founder who's really struggling to get from that idea stage to the uh, growth stage and yeah. it's a beautiful journey it's a raw journey it's very honest and we're making the waves and part of it is is that we've got a technology system in our vineyards that accompanies the agroecology so we've got an ecological system on the vineyard floor and we've got a strategy using sensor technology to really monitor in real time exactly how we are saving water exactly how we're saving fertilizer and accompanying that is what's called a crop model well, a crop model is just a, a str like a recipe or a farming strategy yep. because if you want to make great wine, you have to start at bud break. Really, you have to start at harvest, just after harvest when the season begins. But ultimately, when it's talking about water and fertilizer, bud break to harvest is one big recipe. And so you want to stick to the strategy. You want to use your technology to keep you there. And then that allows you to um, maximize and optimize that sustainability footprint that ability to do the right thing, get the, uh, get the disease pressure down, get your wine quality, wine consistency up, so your, your higher acids, your lower alcohols, better disease resistance, better colour, better mouthfeel and so on. It's all part of a process. And we see this, I think we see it in places like Cullen, right? So the Diana Madeline consistently has been coming down and down and down in alcohol, but the phenolic ripeness, the, the tannin structure in them is still supreme. And so... We're going back to that old school kind of idea of more refreshing wines with more structure that we know are going to sell better because mm. they've been grown better. Yeah, it's an interesting trend. In fact, some of the trends that were coming out of the wine technical conference is that in general, wine consumption is coming down across the planet. Right. The older generation, so the boomers, are starting to worry about their health yeah. and their consumption levels. Yep. At the same time, Gen X is exploring wine, so this is a growth moment. They're exploring new varieties. And then the millennials or the younger generations are, they're 
moving away from heavier wines and more to more of the refreshing style, but they're also into the new ideas, the craft beverages yeah, and totally. ready to drinks and well, so like on. The, looking the at the Starwood Distillery, you know, is a case in point, isn't it? You know, so that's yeah, it, it's it it really caters to to the youngies. Yeah. Well, yeah. and we're losing we're losing consumers in the wine category to you know, seltzers and right. a billion different kinds of craft beers. And we've spoken about, well, Jill and I spoke about on the show before, in California, we see the wine crops being gutted so that they can mm. grow mar- mar- marijuana. So, and if that becomes a thing in Australia, I mean, that's a, that's a cash cow. You well, know. When we sat there in that first, um, that first session listening to how big wine is about to get murdered um, because there's a, a glut, there's was it 130 million cases of wine sitting in tank and the next harvest is coming, yeah. and that's because it didn't get exported like it should have. Um, every one of them was told, get more efficient, get rid of that wine somehow, and increase sustainability. Well, the market's moving in a different direction, and, and low and no alcohol wines are starting to really yeah. trend upwards oh. very rapidly. <laughs> we, we saw that firsthand last week, well, a couple yeah. of weeks ago, yeah. didn't we? Exactly. It, then they had a whole wine show on it, like a right. Yeah, and they had like a wine, a, yeah, a wine show. And he's uh, looking at um, what was his name? He was the wine pilot. Yeah, it was um, Angus Houston. That's right. Yeah, mm. he was fascinating to talk to. I know, and and they obviously got his zero and low um, beers and and things. Yeah. Um. So the so. Did they have a solution for this glut of wine or they just pointed it out and said, do better? I, I had a solution Be for better. big wine. Well, I mean, obviously the first thing is is irrigation. So bring your irrigation down. Start using technology. So um, for Ear Trumpet with our Podatus product, that's what we're looking at is to help them with that. But in the bigger picture is uh, export markets are going to grow very slowly. The premiumization is where all the big companies are looking so that they're looking to less of the big bulk wines, less of the scorched earth, make wine cheap and, and, and cheery mm. and get more into premiumization because that younger generation is looking for experience. Mm. They don't want big, heavy reds. It's like you said before, lighter style wines, but it's about the moment. Yep. So they're more into occasion. And if you can get a wine that you can have a glass of every day, at home, and it doesn't oxidize on the table in front of you. You can have one glass Monday after work, Tuesday after work, etc. That's what people are looking for. Mm. They're also looking at sparkling. They're looking at um, new styles of white wine and rosé because these also tend to have more of a celebration tag attached to them. Yep. Yeah. I was just looking up in my book here. I got a stat from a conference I was at a few weeks ago. It's basically looking at the demographics of drinking. And so by 2026... 50% of drinkers, that is over 18s, are going to be sort of millennials. So we're going to look... 50%? Yeah, we've got to look four Actually. years in four years' time because there's this big boom of that, that crop, crop, I suppose, coming through. Yeah. So they're the new baby boomers, if you think about it, in terms right. of that amount. Mm. So what are we going to give them in four years? It's going to, is it piquettes in cans? Yeah, probably. Cool yeah. things like that. Right? It, it, it's all of that. It's, it's, the, it's sustainability. It's basically saying if you're a drinker, whether you realise that the sort of the craft beer industry is doing a nice job of expanding their offerings and their flavour profiles and so on, if you're a wine brand and you're trying to be too traditional and too stuck in your ways and just heavy glass bottles and making heavy Shiraz, that's kind of going to be in the past now. And what people are looking at is they are interested in sustainability that's really clear. So have an audit for your winery. 
or for your business, have a clear path out and show your consumer that they are what they're buying is responsible. And the term that was bandied around a lot was this ESG. And ESG stands for environmental, social and governance. And so environmental, we're talking about the environmental footprint. footprint. Is your packaging trending towards environmental? Is your wine uh, is your journey shorter? You know, can you shorten the the chain? Can you get into a cyclical economy? Are you working in the vineyard to uh, in, increase your carbon footprint? So you're carbon uh, neutral. Can you get your winery close to carbon neutral? Uh, on the social side, it's about are you giving back to the community? Are you working with local communities? Are you doing work in that sphere to help people feel good about their purchases? And then on the governance is, is do you have a clear plan for everybody to see it and you're showing it in your packaging? So as a good example, and I'm going to mm. plug the Linnea again, is in the vineyard, we're working towards carbon neutral. We are putting native plants in place so that we're giving habitat to endangered insects. All of the uh, properties around our vineyard is uh, it's farmland and there's cowboys out there that are spot spraying herbicide on windy days. And so what we're doing is we're giving refuge to species of insect that we don't even need in the vineyard. Mm. But that's refuge because they're going to survive and they're going to be able to continue that um, rich ecosystem. So we're putting yep. plantings in on the vineyard floor, we're putting carpets under vine, and we are working with the perimeters and the lands around that so that there's carbon um, sequestration going on. So we'll end up being a carbon storing uh, property. Uh, then we're shortening the supply chain. We're looking at packaging. In the winery, we are, uh, we're about to go through a process of uh, renewal. So it's going to solar. It's going to green roofs. It's going towards um, – we're looking at an algae bioprocessor. So we're capturing all of our carbon dioxide of fermentation and turning it into um, either fertilizer or products, you know, food, feed products and so on. Wow. So there's a real important step that uh, all brands need to take, which is to start with your how you are now and reduce that footprint and bring it down and tell everybody what your story is because they want to hear it. Mm. Sometimes this is being mandated, though. So, for instance, if you want to export your wines to, say, Norway or Finland or Sweden in those monopoly markets, you've got to have skinny boxes, the cardboard's got to be thinner, skinny bottles. But I see, you know, just even at, my, at Dan's, so I work at Dan's in Elfington, you get people coming in and they look at Piero Chardonnay and they pick it up and they go, oh, it's a really flimsy light bottle. And you go, that's a good thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is a great thing. Why do you need a two and a half kilo bottle with a massive punt in it? I mean, it's just a waste of it, everything. It is. It, it, it's no longer the sign of premium, unfortunately. Premium is now if you can open a wine and have it open on the table for five days, that's a sign of premium because yeah. you're not wasting wine. Yeah. You're not going back and buying a second one and you're not, you know, opening a second bottle. So the so Scandinavia is an interesting, interesting point in that they are now really looking at the length of the supply chain and that puts a bit of pressure on Australia because we do go a long way yeah. to get to that part of the world. Yep. And mm. in Europe, they're actually starting to mandate the environmental standards now, which Australia is realising we're going to have to fit their models as well. Yeah. And can we get there on the right timeline from where we're at? Well, brands like ours will. Yeah. We'll be able to do it in very short periods. It's the big brands that are really going to struggle yeah. because maybe the best thing they do, the ones that are, you know, the flood irrigators out in the Murray, maybe they just cut the vines out and plant cannabis if, you know, it's the easy, well, that's the shortest path. Having said that, though, in, some, in those countries, the, the rate, well, what they drink by volume is mostly 
bag in box. Right. So in Sweden, it's like 54% goon. Yeah. So <laughs> on the one hand, they're saying we love bag in box because it's less wasteful. But on the other hand, they're saying we still need like bulk juice. So it's kind of a little bit of a conundrum for the industry. It is. Yeah. And there's a bit of cognitive dissonance there as well because Massively. the average consumer, the, the bulk of consumers think glass is a recyclable, is a, is a good carbon, you know, carbon friendly product because it's recyclable. Yeah. But what's happening now is the industry, the glass industry is realizing that they need to do better at putting things like electric furnaces in and a higher recycled content. And if you look at Europe, Bottles do get recycled. You'll go and get a Coca-Cola or a, even a glass, you know, a bottle of wine, and you'll see scratch marks on it because it's been around once. Yeah. So yeah, we're working right. on that in so Australia. Not just crush it and make it. Yeah. Make another yeah. one. A- actual re- re- actually, reuse. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, yeah. that's something that doesn't happen in Australia for a few reasons: the distance we have to carry these things, and the amount of water and energy we need to actually clean them out. So in Europe, mm-hmm. they have. It's easy for them. So here it's about getting that glass high percentage recycled, getting them into um, recycled bottles made locally. Yeah. Yeah, and skinnier, th- thinner bottles that are just that use less energy to make in the first place. Oh, I just, I yeah. still don't understand that idea of picking up a heavy bottle and going, "Oh, that's a great <laughs> wine." I, yeah. I, I just, I've never understood that. But I tell you one thing though: there is a, there's a clear, um, th- there's a clear desire for the consumer to want immediate gratification in terms of this is going to guarantee me quality, and I think that's where that that mindset came from. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Mm. Don't. It's, it's a strange thing. I, if you could get a goon bag full of Grange and it was good, I'd be doing that. But, but um, if Peter's well, listening, I'm, I'm sorry, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I mean, that you know, the, the bag in box is, is your answer to you in, in one way, to you one glass a night for, you know, because you're keeping the oxygen out. But, um, but there's a lot more sulfur going the, in to keep it, yeah, you know. Well, so, all of that, isn't yeah. it? Um, so... Um, so wine tech was uh, was it a whole week? It was four days, yeah. Okay, yeah, um, and good. Like, I think I was. I looked at a lot of sullen faces after the first day, because I think the bulk of the people there were from the larger industries. But I was really excited. I mean, there was a strong push to we now have to, as an industry, understand how sustainability is critical. Water use. Some of the information that was presented is that with the changing climate, we're going to see less uh, rainfall, which is in and of itself not a big deal. Grapevines are extraordinarily resilient. Our Podatus AgTech actually reduces water by 20 or 30%. And so vines can handle it. What we see is improved wine color, wine quality, mouthfeel, and so on. So we know the vines are okay. Their resilience is up there. What is going to be important is that is a, strange, is a change of culture around mm-hmm. growing and making wine. So there's going to be a little bit less of it. There'll be a lot more technology going into it. There is a push towards aroma science. So um, someone like Michelle, our winemaker, who's got all these sort of fancy ideas about food fermentation and so on, those, those are really valuable insights to be able to have because you're now targeting your wine growing and your wine making towards very specific classes of flavor that consumers are interested in for special occasions. Right. Um, and then... And then the social governance. So again, as an example, we are working with um, native plants. And so what we're looking at is how do we repay intellectual property back to the First Nations peoples of this country? They've got 40,000, 50,000 years of intellectual property that's in all of our native plants. You see them popping up in gins. You see them popping up in uh, various places. They're appearing in foods. So mm. as, a, a, as a group with um, Ear Trumpet, we're actually looking at what are the ways we can improve upon 
their intellectual property and then give back to those communities at the same time and bring them into our, our programs and our strategies so that we're bringing in that social governance, we're bringing in mm. their knowledge. Another great example is water management in vineyards. Again, the First Nations peoples have understood all of our water systems, our river systems for thousands and thousands of years. Only last year was anyone from that um, from a First Nations community even put on a water governance panel for the Murray-Darling. Mm. It's staggering. <laughs> that is, that yeah. is staggering. Um, we, uh, we've only got sort of a few more minutes. But, okay. Um, I wanted to change topic <laughs> slightly because one of the, thing, one of the uh, things we discussed is you were in a, a Chinese <laughs> game show <laughs> <laughs> I have been lucky enough to be stuck in some of the most strangest and awkward places around the world. I think I've been arrested twice at Moscow Airport just for a start, for no fault of my own, but it just happens. Um, I've seen a lot of fun stuff like Putin diving for uh, um, amphorae at the bottom of a local uh, a local ocean and magically coming up with an ancient artifact oh. and things like that. <laughs> I was there when uh, Crimea was annexed and uh, they, they built that bridge in a hurry and forgot to put turnouts so that if you if you took a wrong turn, you'd 70 kilometre trip across to Crimea <laughs> and back before you can get back to where you were. Um, there's a lot of fun stuff going on. You didn't drive across that bridge, by the way, because the truck he was in would have fallen in. The bridge right. wasn't stabilised at the time. <laughs> anyway, um, in China, uh, many, many fun things happened. We, uh, one of which was they had a, a, a game show on. This was back in 2013, I think. And it was a lot like Shark Tank, if you guys know Shark Tank. So it's mm-hmm. um, 100 ideas, um, 10 per episode, and then the best five would go to the finals. And so they were put in front of entrepreneurs. These were just startup ideas. They were put in front of entrepreneurs and uh, they got to pitch their ideas. And so it was done with a lot of fanfare, um, as you might expect. When China was in a big stadium, there was 50,000 people in the crowd. There were lights and this uh, this guy with the compare was, he might have been, you know, sort of five foot one, but he had the energy of Superman. Mm-hmm. And he was bouncing around and telling stories and everyone's laughing. It's all in Chinese. i got no idea. I was brought in as a um, as one of the professional referees of the wine company that I was working for. So sort of the the integrity, if you will, for their brand. I was a consultant that worked in Napa Valley and all these other places, and so I was there to be interviewed. And they gave me the list of questions beforehand, which was great. And I had a translator next to me who was standing there in baggy jeans and actually I think baggy tracksuit pants. (laughs) I'm in my nice suit. The tracky derps. And... (laughs) I get asked the questions and not one single one of them was anything like what it was. <laughs> they started asking me about French wine and I yeah. hadn't worked in France at that yeah. point. So yeah. I just said, sure, made something up. This um, lovely engineer up in the crowd who's one of the 100 other entrepreneurs who's also part of the voting process starts yelling at me that I'm wrong, <laughs> gets into an argument and we bogged the entire show down. We literally bogged two hours of television down in this back and forth argument about uh, about water use and, and pesticides in the south of France. And uh, it turns out the winery I was with didn't win, <coughs> probably not because of what I was doing, because it was the chicken shop that was literally copying and pasting the KFC model that, yeah, that won. And, and the group that came in second was, was doing the same thing with bacon. <laughs> I almost get, <laughs> get worried on a Chinese game show that whatever you're saying, the translator's just changing slightly as well. <laughs> who, who, who knows? I, and I, just kind of grinning at the same time. I'm sure that <laughs> happened in the vineyard. There were so many funny moments when we were walking along and they're just looking at me like, oh, that didn't come yeah, out correctly. It does sure. not compute. No. <laughs>
Um, now, where can we where can we find your uh, your wine? Um, so Linnea. Yes, yeah, so LinneaVineyards.com is our website. L i double n a e a Vineyards.com. You can find us there. You can find us in uh, there. Are, we are in a couple of dans. Uh, I think in Richmond, I'm not sure where the others are. And then just independent wine shops. Best places to find us online, though. Go to Instagram, go to Facebook, and then just drop us a note. Everything comes with uh, personal chats with us and some fun stories. I've got another 130 stories from around the world (laughs) if anybody wants. Um, There's some crackerjacks in there. So just reach out, uh, ask us... You know, if you want to have a recommendation or anything like that, new varieties, different clones, uh, you know, reinvention of Cabernet Franc, anything you'd like, give us a yell. We'll, we'll have a chat and we'll get you something perfect for that perfect occasion. That sounds excellent. Um, well worth uh, the digging it up. Oh, yeah. Um, so the stuff from Italy I tasted was really good. I haven't tasted the Aussie stuff, so I look forward to getting around it. Have a look at the Arinto. It's one of the varieties that's uh, going to really take off. We were the first uh, Arinto planting in Victoria, and it's now exploding all over the place. It's a perfect variety for... A uh, white, white variety? It's a white wine, yeah. It's, so it's a, it's a Portuguese white grape, and uh, it's perfect for the environment that we're growing in in Heathcote. We're using our strategies with Arctech Tech and our agroecology, um, e- our regenerative farming, and it just lends itself to really, really complex flavours and different styles every vintage too. Mm. Carl Linnaeus would be proud, mate. <laughs> He'd be certainly. Um, Daniel, thank you. Um, thanks for coming in. It's always always fun having people in, yeah. in studio. Isn't yeah, it? we no, love it. Absolutely. It's so much more fun. I yep. do. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, gentlemen. I love your show as well.